0: Of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, Here in the love of Christ, I stand in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ No guilt in life, no fear in death This is the power of Christ in me From life's first to final breath Jesus commands my destiny No power of hell, no scheme of man Here in the power of Christ I stand. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor may thee I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Never let me wander from The fleeting changes of life's uneven ways But if my Savior calls me to that sweet home on high I'll live with Him forever in glory by and by Oh yes, I'll live in glory, living glory by and by I'll tell and sing the story, tell of story high and high There with my dear Redeemer, there no more, no more to die Oh yes, I'll live in glory, glory by To be of service along this pilgrim way, and lead the lost to Jesus, as fervently I pray. As day by day I travel, I'll keep him ever nigh, and live with him forever, in glory by and by. Oh yes, I'll live in glory, living by glory. High and by. I'll tell and sing, the story, we'll tell of story. There on day. high, there with my dear Redeemer. They no more, it's to die. Oh, yes, i live in glory, in glory. By and by. The end I know is nearing. By faith, I look away to yonder old supernal, the land of endless day. I'll cling to him forever and look beyond the sky and spend the endless ages in glory. By and by. Oh, yes, I'll live in glory by and by I'll tell and sing the story, tell them stand on high, they with with mighty redeemer, they no, more, no to more to die. Oh yes, a living glory, glory by and by
1: Good morning. Welcome to our Wednesday morning Bible study. I'm Clayton Wilfer. I'm the pastor here at Joy Church in Fountain Hills, Arizona. Blessings to you. I'm glad that you could join us. So, uh, first of all, our internet has been going on and off uh, this morning. It's been working fine now. If, for whatever reason, it freezes up on you, text me at 612-396-2953. Okay, so I know I'm giving out my cell phone number, but it's out there on the web anyway Anyway, if you want to find it, not a big deal. But text me, don't put it in the message uh, or um, online here, because if it freezes up, I might not be able to see it. Uh, the other thing is, is that we are not streaming on YouTube again. I don't know why, haven't touched anything. Uh, and it's interesting that on a Wednesday morning for Bible study, especially talking about fighting Satan, that Satan uh, desires to silence message the message of Christ Jesus. There you go. Um, so we are doing, I'm doing what we can, what I can here to make sure that the message gets out. Okay, so good morning, good morning. And as always, remember that we have three ways of accessing the the online content. It is through Facebook, through YouTube, and then also through our website as well. Okay, another announcement. Yes, it seems like we just finished the Christmas season, and now Lent is coming up. Uh, that's just how that works, because uh, Lent is... Ba- uh, Easter is based on that Sunday following the Passover, and Passover is a movable feast, so it's not always set uh, on the particular uh, week or day. Uh, well, the, the particular week or month, I should say. So Lent's coming up, and it starts Valentine's Day. Yes, believe it or not, it starts on Valentine's Day, and it is February 14th through March 20th. So our Lenten schedule, we uh, are going to have Ash Wednesday, and that begins the time of Lent. So that's Wednesday, February 14th, 7 p.m. It's going to be in person and online, just like all of Lent will be in person and online at 7, starting at 7 p.m. But after Ash Wednesday, which is going to be a traditional time of worship, After, we're going to do a Lenten series, and it's going to be a little bit different than uh, regular times of worship. It's going to be about one hour long. We're going to try to keep it to one hour. Uh, It will be in person and live streamed. Uh, It's going to be more informal, though. It's not going to be a formal time of worship. So we're going to have songs, prayers, talk, and a talk versus a sermon. Okay, So these won't be sermons but there are going to be talks, and you might be asking, so what's the talk about? Well, let me tell you. It is going to be, what is the AFLC? Because, quite frankly, a lot of people have no idea what the AFLC is, and that means Association of Free Lutheran Congregations, AFLC. And we are at a point in our journey here at Joy Church Judy B, YouTube isn't working right now. So um, try the website. I'm going to type this in. Try the website versus YouTube because YouTube isn't working. Okay. All right. So. Yeah, a lot of tech stuff this morning. I think the devil's at work here. Okay, so what is the AFLC? I think that's where we are within our journey at Joy Church. You know, how did the AFLC start? Uh, What does it mean to be a free and living congregation? What does it mean to be Lutheran? And then what is the vision or the next steps for Joy Church within all of that? That is going to be our series. Okay. So, uh, Lee, give me a heads up by the way, if it's, uh, frozen for you at all. Hey, good morning, Cheryl. Glad that you could join us. Just FYI, we've been having tech problems. If it freezes up, um, on Facebook, try our website. Don't go to YouTube. Rose says website is working well. All right, (laughs) here we go. Uh, let's have a time of prayer, man. (laughs) Okay. Gracious God, heavenly father, uh, Protect this time of Bible study from all of the technology whack-a-moles. Let the devil be banished from what we are doing. Let your word go out uninterrupted. Gracious God, let your glory be proclaimed. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Great. Hey, thanks, Lee. Glad that's working so far on Facebook. All right, let's do a little bit of warm-up. And by the way, I did put uh, Bible study notes. I was a bit late this morning, uh, but they are up online for you if you want to uh, do any fill-in-the-blanks. Let's warm up our brains a little bit and briefly review what we covered in Chapter 10, which was a pause before the seventh trumpet. So it began this way. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring when he called out the seven thunders sounded. And so there's the very dramatic picture here of the angel who is standing on both sea and land, so it is. Um, uh, it speaks really about the whole earth. And he's got a little scroll, and we'll get to that for a moment. But he calls out and has an oath to God, using God's name, really, of him who was and is and lives forever, that these things shall come to pass So it's a quite dramatic moment, even though it's a pause before the trumpets are sounding. And so what he's pronouncing here is under God's full authority, and it will be fulfilled. So God's will will be fulfilled. So that's briefly what we covered regarding the angel. And then John is to take this scroll This little scroll that's been opened, not the same scroll that has the seven seals, a different scroll, a little scroll that's been opened, and it was both sweet and bitter. And we talked about that. It is sweet because it is the word of God, and it was bitter because it proclaims God's judgment. And so last week we had a conversation a little bit about the gospel, which is sweet, and the law, which is bitter, but points us brings us to repentance, and points us to the sweetness of the gospel. All right, that's briefly what we covered. And then we got into chapter 11 with the two witnesses. And we did cover that to some degree, but I want to take another run at it because there's actually quite a bit in there. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So we covered that last week, but just as a reminder, 1,260 days equals 42 months, or three and a half years. And there are different views on that. The preterists, those who believe that this has already taken place, already been fulfilled, believe that this was the period of the Jewish war against Rome from 66 to 70 AD. Um, and, and indeed, it, it could very well fit in there with the fall of Jerusalem. The historists would say, well, actually, one day equals one year, so 1,260 years, and they do some math, and they say that's the true remnant of the church to the time of the Reformation. The futurists who say that this has not happened yet say that this is a literal three and a half years, or two series of three and a half years equals seven years And the idealist says, you know what, this symbolizes the entire church age, this 1260 days. So, just as a reminder, now let's go to the two witnesses. Speaks of two witnesses that will be there. Last week, we cross referenced Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. I would encourage you, if you weren't on with us last week, to go ahead and reference that. But it does speak about two witnesses. And here's my question today why two witnesses? First, sip of coffee here. Why two witnesses? It has to do with what God has said regarding legal proceedings. I mean, there's a really big tie into having two witnesses, not just one, but two, especially when there's a condemnation or a declaration of death. So Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse two through seven. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, God's covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them. Idolatry, right? And, and Revelation is full of idolatry, you know, of people who are rejecting God and idolizing false idols, false gods, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven. So an idol, right, could also be part of nature. So the the pagan worship of sun, moon, water, things like that. And it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil, this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. So idolatry is no small thing to God. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So God has been very clear about this idolatry, this false worship, and he says there are two witnesses for that. So I, the, the reason for two witnesses is that there is a rebuke and a condemnation of death. All right. Hey, Judy B., I'm glad it's back on Facebook for you. So let's go on with these two witnesses. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesy, prophesying And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So this actually is reminiscent of Elijah, who actually declared a drought. Three and a half years. Hmm, interesting. In the days of Elijah, a famine lasting three and a half years was intended to move King Ahab to repentance. And it says Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbi of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So this is very reminiscent, not only are they declaring uh, God's word, they have the power for a drought. And there's actually more power than they have for that, but they, are decla- they would declare the drought. So who are these two witnesses? Well, they are certainly, if nothing else, symbolic of the overall true church witness. Two humans are actual prophets from God, that's another idea or Old Testament prophets such as Elijah and Enoch, uh, the only two who did not taste death. So, Elijah really did have the power given to him by God, not power himself, but power given by God, to declare a drought. Others say Moses and Elijah, Moses striking his staff down. Uh, for the plagues and so forth, the parting of the Red Sea. So these are some ideas. A lot of people favor uh, certainly Elijah and Enoch or Moses and Elijah. But the first two, Elijah and Enoch, seem to have the most uh, traction, so to speak, amongst scholars who believe that. Okay, so let's continue on here. And when they had finished their testimony the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So who's the beast? Well, this is Satan, right? Satan himself rises up from the bottomless pits from hell and makes war on them. And so here's my question. Why does Satan hate the witnesses? And I will uh, go for a little bit of uh, coffee here. Why does Satan hate the witnesses. What do you think? So there, there they are. They are standing and they're prophesying. Let me just ask it this, this way. Why would Satan hate any street evangelist? Because, I mean, that's what these two are, by the way, right? They are proclaiming God's word. And indeed, that would be the reason Satan hates these witnesses because they are proclaiming God's word. So one commentary said, The beast's primary attack is on the message. And secondarily, on the messengers. He kills the messengers to silence the message. Satan hates the message of Christ Jesus. He hates the message of the gospel. And he will try to do anything to silence them. Rose writes in, because they are of God. Yeah, Satan hates when Christ is proclaimed, when God is proclaimed. And so he will do everything in his power to silence them. And if you take a look around the world right now, Christians around the world are being silenced. Yeah, you can talk about the faith of worshiping uh, the sun, the moon, of Satan, right? But Worshiping Jesus, doesn't that create the uproar? Doesn't that say you should be silent on that? I mean, take a look at what's happening in England right now. Even praying in your head, silently praying in your head, outside an abortion clinic has gotten a woman arrested several times. I mean, they hate the thought of any message, even in our heads. They want that to be silenced. So this commentary goes on. When, the end, when at the end of times, unbelievers reject the message, God withdraws both message and messengers, permitting the Antichrist to kill the saints. So God is going to withdraw the messengers and his message. This doesn't mean that all of the saints are going to be killed by the Antichrist, but uh, you should be ready. So let's continue on here. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Okay, so what is this great city here, right? The great city, well, we know where Jesus was crucified, Jerusalem, right? He was crucified in Jerusalem. So that's the great city. But there's a little bit more to it. So when you take a look at Jerusalem, Uh, this great city, it could actually represent other spiritually corrupt cities. So this word up here, it says in the ESV, the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt. Uh, Others write metaphorically. One translation I saw does that. Another writes uh, spiritually is called. I mean, the the actual word would be uh, more of a spiritual nature. So not just symbolically, but spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, it's not good to call something Sodom, and it's not good to call something Egypt. So if you take a look in the Bible, Egypt is vilified for oppression and idolatry, right? So they enslaved the Hebrews. And they wanted them to worship the Egyptian gods. And Sodom, well, Sodom we know for wickedness and immorality. So this is a really strong, strong rebuke against this great city. So it says, and their dead bodies will line the streets of the great city. For three and a half days, and I believe this is a literal days, not years, not just a symbolic number. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And get this, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's a holiday, right? It's a feast, it's a festival, because those messengers of God are dead, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell in the earth, right? They were prophesying God's word, and I'm sure it wasn't uh, sweet to their ears. I'm sure it was very bitter, because it would have proclaimed the law to have them, repent, to declare the abomination of their idolatry. So here's the question for you. What is the significance of leaving their dead bodies in the street? That's a question for you. Why leave their dead bodies in the street? If you think in Roman times, by the way, they would have had many crucifixes along the road with dead bodies hanging there. Why? Why not just take them down? Why leave some of them to rot on the crucifix? Well, if you think about it, really, it shows the victory over your enemy. Right? It shows the victory, and it also is about humiliation. So not only will people of the beast, right, because they are against Christ, not only people will uh, have a holiday, they are declaring victory and humiliation of the witnesses and all witnesses of God. And Rose writes, yeah, they return to dust and spirit goes to heaven. And we see actually God is going to call them back. All right, and so good segue, Rose, here we go. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. This is a true resurrection. And you can't deny this resurrection. Just like Jesus was in the tomb And then he rose again from the dead, God rose them from the dead. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, the witnesses, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God in heaven. So there's a little bit of split on commentators regarding this one, that they gave glory to the God of heaven. Uh, Some say these are the people who actually repented and came to faith because they would then declare God's glory. Others would say that they gave glory to God, but still didn't really repent. I have to go with the first. Uh, you know, if they actually give glory to God, true glory to God, I would say that they would have repented and come to faith. So this is the the sixth, uh, the end of this the second woe is past behold behold the third woe is to come woe 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 is me all right so we are now going to get to the seventh trumpet here the seventh trumpet so given everything so far in chapter 11 what do you expect to happen with the blowing of the seventh trumpet I mean, really, we've just talked about everything that's happened. There's been now an earthquake. Tenth of the city has died, 7,000 people. What do you expect to happen with the blowing of seventh trumpet? If I were just reading this the first time, I would expect that greater destruction to happen immediately. But we don't see that, do we? We see something else happening. It says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, question for you. What song uses this verse? Here we go. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So, Rose, I think you got the significance of what happens. But uh, do you know the song? So this is the Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus. It's a wonderful song, right? And what does it do? It declares the victory, the full sovereign power of God and of Christ Jesus. And Rose wrote, sorry, my phone, here we go. Jesus appears and we will be with him in heaven. The hallelujah chorus. That's right. Amen, amen. So really, the seventh trumpet sounding is the... Not just the final woe here, but it is the sound of the full victory of Christ Jesus. That's what happens here at the end of chapter 11. And so at the sound of this trumpet, the victory, the victory being declared And it says this, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken great power and have begun to reign. So the elders around the throne are just praising, praising God, praising the Lamb. And it says this, they continue on, the nation nations raged but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth now this is an interesting thing to cross reference psalm 2 So Psalm 2 says this, why do the nations rage? Isn't that what we just had? The nations raged. But here, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill i will tell you of the decrees the lord said to me you are my son today i have begotten you ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel so this is this is the declaration in heaven the fulfillment of psalm 2 of the Messiah, the Christ, ruling over even though the nations rage and the rulers plot against him. And even though the rulers kill and Satan would kill the messengers, God reigns, Jesus reigns. And it ends this way, chapter 11, and I think we're going to end we aren't even going to try to start chapter 12 because I know this is a lot to take in, right? Uh, That's why I've slowed down a bit on this chapter. The imagery is so rich. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. This is dramatic, right? Christ's reign has been declared. Then God's temple in heaven was open. You know, you get your your heavenly chorus sound as grand as you can have. The hallelujah chorus, right? Opening up. So, Ark of the Covenant. Let's talk about this. We've covered this before, but where do we first find the Ark of the Covenant? Where do we find the Ark of the Covenant, and where is it placed? I know you know this one. We find it in the Old Testament. We find it in Exodus. And indeed here, so I'm going to just go full screen for a moment. This is the the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And on the outer part, you have the holy place. And then it's divided by this curtain, the veil. And then within there is the Ark of the Covenant. So Ark of the Covenant, let's go back one slide here. Ark of the Covenant, that's one artist's rendition of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that was within it, you would, uh, you would find the first five books, the Torah, manna, uh, Aaron's staff, and on top you have the seraphim. So in, uh, on the bottom, by the way, on, in there, that would be the law, right? The, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Pentateuch, that's the law. So that's holy. But on top of the law is the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, which is guarded by the cherubim, on the mercy seat, that's where God's presence would be on the high holy day of atonement. And his mercy is declared for the forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. And it was only the high priest who come could come in. I know you know this, but this is worth mentioning because it is so prominent here in chapter 11. So, let's go forward into the New Testament, not Revelation yet. And here's the question, what was torn on Good Friday? And what is the significant significance of it being torn? So take a little sip of coffee on this. I do want, if you can put up an answer on this, that would be great. What was torn on Good Friday? And what's the significance of it being torn? And I do have to take a sip of coffee sometimes because there's a 20, 30-second lag occasionally. Okay, significance of what was torn on Good Friday. And you might have gotten that already, but I'm going to go ahead here. The veil. The veil in the temple. So there's an artist's rendition on Good Friday. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, as if men could do that, but top to bottom. Yes, and, and and Rose writes, The veil was torn, and so we come directly to Jesus. So what was what did we see in the in the temple then? In the temple what was unveiled, literally, right? Unveiled was the Ark of the Covenant. That that was the holy place. The holy place where God's presence was. So no longer would we be separated from Christ Jesus who sits on the mercy seat. But now everybody has access to him and so the glory of God was revealed, made accessible. And now what we have here is the revealing of God's glory. The Reformation study Bible put it this way, the revealing of this innermost object signifies that God has revealed his glory, both the glory of his law, right, which is the Pentateuch, the law, his covenant words, and his mercy as signified by the atonement cover or the mercy seat. So we have this Quite dramatic moment here where the trumpet is blown. The Christ is declared sovereign and ruler over everything. There is praise in heaven and the glory of God revealed fully with the Ark of the Covenant being shown. This is chapter 11. It is a declaration of God's sovereignty over everything, of Christ ruling over everything, of his glory. And really, for those who have ears to hear, it is a message of good news. For those who reject it, it is a message of condemnation. So this is both gospel and law here. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the words are sweet, and they comfort us. For those who are against Christ Jesus, these words are bitter, and they would rather kill the messenger. So this is chapter 11. Um, We are going to go into chapter 12. I'll do a, a, a brief, brief review. Pray that the technology in YouTube gets worked out. Don't know why. But I will, this is uh, recorded, so I will be re, uh, posting the recording on YouTube later on. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word, which gives great comfort to us. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ Jesus, knowing that he is sovereign over all things. Let us cling to him and to his word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, give me a little bit of feedback, if you will, on the study. Uh, there's actually a lot more we could have gone into, but um, I'm, I'm trying to give you enough without being overloading. <laughs> yeah, what a balance. Let me know. Uh, but have a blessed day. Have a blessed week. Thanks. Bye bye.